the weapon that was used to educate young people mm-hmm. and to discourage them from using drugs was fear. My mom was born in Fresno, California in 1975. And I grew up in, I think, kind of the last idyllic age where I had um, typical nuclear family. Most of my friends' parents had both their mom and dad in the house. Um, We lived in a neighborhood where we could, you know, leave the house and, and not really have to come back until dinner time, until it was time for dinner. We could ride our bikes around the neighborhood and yeah, it was, it was awesome. Underlying the classic 1980s childhood though, she remembers a lot of fear when it came to telling kids what they should and shouldn't do. I was like reading this ridiculous, it wasn't ridiculous. I loved it at the time. It was called Sweet Valley High. (laughs) It was basically like this Beverly Hills 90210 Mm -hmm. series and I love to read, and so I was always reading, and I read this one story about this, like, amazing young woman, high school student, high achiever, like, popular, beautiful, you know, great resume on her way to college, at a party. She decides to give in and have some fun and does drugs and dies. Oh my God. And she had like what a, kind of drug does she do? It was Coke. I'm pretty sure it was cocaine. And I'm pretty in if I'm remember, I should try and find the book because I can see I can see the picture like the the she had black hair like she had, you know, of course, she was white and had beautiful white porcelain skin and black hair. Um and if I'm remembering this correctly, and it hasn't been distorted, um, that she had like some kind of underlying heart condition mm. that basically because she did drugs, it just like threw her heart rate off and she went into cardiac arrest and died. And so like I was telling John, I was like, yeah, that's why I never did drugs. I was afraid that I had like some kind of heart condition. And if I did it, I would just die right then and there. My dad, also an 80s kid, recalls that same atmosphere of fear. One of the big, big things was, you know, avoid strangers you know that was that was the big i remember for me that being a predominant like fear you know like don't talk to strangers you know uh, you know someone's there was just this like feeling like just this paranoia that there were people driving around schools you know just getting for you candy but one thing i do remember again about the drugs was hearing a story of a kid taking something it was some drug like a probably get of some acid or something i guess would have started tripping or whatever else at them but the effect was that they felt like they thought there were spiders running across the body you know and so that kid went and jumped in the swimming pool to get him off and drowned from as a result of that. And I don't know why I remember that, but that was probably the image that that was strongest in my mind um, about like you know how bad drugs could be. The war on drugs pervades U.S. society, no longer just a policy package but in many ways a cultural symbol, a shared experience for millions of people. From political proclamations to just say no 
to TV shows like Cops and Narcos, to the ubiquitous Red Ribbon Week in the nation's schools, drug prohibition has become as American as apple pie. While visceral images of police raids, gang violence, and the effects of drugs on the body that characterized the war on drugs in the 1980s and 1990s linger, drug control in the opening decades of the 21st century has gravitated towards reform through health-focused approaches. These new approaches are driven especially by books like Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, books that draw attention to the human cost of the military campaign against illicit substances that characterized the drug war in recent decades. What's clear is the consensus between policy experts, historians, social scientists, and much of the public. The war on drugs has failed. As the United States further explores the idea of marijuana legalization, it's time to reevaluate what we know and what we think we know about the war on drugs. When and where did it really begin? What has it been trying to achieve? Why has it persisted for so long? And will we ever be able to quit it? On this season of Prologue, I talk with experts on drug history about the global roots of the drug war, how it evolved, and its consequences. Together, we will uncover how the centuries-long history of drug control prologues today's discussions of drug use, abuse, and legalization. For Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, I'm Brianna Mendoza, and this is Prologued. Despite widespread criticism that it has failed, the war on drugs drags on. In March 2020, Attorney General William Barr unsealed charges of narco-terrorism and drug trafficking against Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro and others in his regime. Allegedly, members of Maduro's military regime had used Venezuelan airspace to transport cocaine. These charges emerged after months of pressure from the Trump administration on Maduro to step down following his election victory that the international community deemed illegitimate. The U.S. has also historically been opposed to socialist governments in Venezuela since the election of Hugo Chavez in 1999, further compounding diplomatic tension. The charges were, and still are, unlikely to amount to anything. So why bring drugs into this political and diplomatic situation at all? To answer that question, we have to examine how and why drugs became a foreign policy issue for the United States in the first place. Many present-day discussions of the war on drugs are isolated to the question of use and decriminalization within the United States, and the United States alone. But as we will see, the development of the war on drugs at home was deeply informed by experiences abroad and coalesced around the understanding that identifying drugs as an enemy empowered the U.S. to harass people and places that really weren't about drugs at all. This is a story that starts many decades before Nixon and Reagan, even before the idea of a so-called drug war became synonymous with the United States of America. It winds its way through familiar settings like 1970s Mexico and Afghanistan and takes surprising detours to World War II-era Japan and colonial China. But first, we must begin at its final destination with what experts refer to as the modern drug war. 
So if we're talking about declaring war on drugs, I would say the war on drugs begins with the Nixon administration. But if we're looking at um, the creation of a prohibitionist legal regime and a prohibitionist ethos surrounding the issue of drug use, then we have to go much further back in time, even before the 20th century in the United States. I discussed the origins of the drug war with Michelle Paranzino, an assistant professor in the Department of Strategy and Policy at the U.S. Naval War College. But if we're talking about declaring war on drugs, that doesn't really happen until Nixon. I think part of the reason is just the due to the Cold War and this state of like constant militarization. Eileen Teague assistant professor of international affairs at the Bush School of Texas A&M, agrees. And then fundamentally with like Vietnam, this is a, in U.S. history, this is a period of, of great instability and generational change um, with the United States being involved in Vietnam and this idea of not just showing pure reverence to the government, but also with many of these people using drugs actively, you know, against what the government was doing Um, This was seen um, to politicians like Richard Nixon as a threat. And so I think drugs definitely fit into the framework of quelling the instability of this 1960s period. As part of his 1968 presidential campaign, Richard Nixon emphasized the need for law and order amid the tumult of that decade, singling out control of illicit substances as a way to maintain security and control, not just at home, but also abroad. It is important to keep in mind that since its founding, the U.S. has viewed its place in the world, geographically, politically, culturally, as exceptional. Threats to the quote-unquote city upon a hill didn't come from within. They came from without, from foreign powers and people seeking to undermine its freedom and democracy. Buzzwords that, in the American lexicon, have largely come to mean white, Christian, and capitalist. American paranoia about these foreign threats has taken many forms. Witch hunts in Salem, for example, or Japanese-American internment during World War II, and interrogations before the Congressional House Un-American Activities Committee during the Red Scare. Whether based in fact or not, the fear about others infiltrating our border to extinguish America's light, that fear is quite real. American anxiety about drugs is best understood within this context, and it explains why, when it came to combating drugs, the U.S. favored an approach that took the fight straight to the source, the countries where the drugs themselves were cultivated. So in the 70s and 80s, what we see in U.S. foreign policy is a turn towards supply-side strategies of narcotics control. Rather than treating the demand side Supply side strategies aim to do is to uh, prevent the importation of drugs into the United States by either destroying the drug crops at the source or interdicting the traffic before it can reach uh, U.S. territory. The reason that source control has been the the favorite approach uh, for the United States regarding drug control. On one level, it's it's kind of simple. 
This is Daniel Weimer, a scholar of U.S. foreign policy, especially concerning the role of drug control and its relations abroad. So I think on the most basic level, right, it, it, it keeps the focus outside of the United States rather than really having to deal with what are the myriad reasons that go into demand for whatever drug you want to you wanna talk about. So that emphasis on kind of externalizing the, the root of the problem, seeing the origins as mm-hmm. coming from places, you know, whether it's uh, the French connection uh, out of, um, you know, involving Turkish uh, heroin or later on uh, Mexico or Afghanistan or uh, cocaine from, you know, South America. So I think that's, that's one um, really big reason for an emphasis mm-hmm. on source control, seeing it as in, in that way, then you can, you know, uh, characterize drug use as uh, something that's not uh, American or that it's, you know, as I said before, it's foreign born. So Nixon was sworn into office in January 1969 with drug use and trafficking as one of his top policy issues. And the way he initially talked about the topic suggested that his administration intended to balance the care and rehabilitation of American drug addicts with action abroad against drug cultivation and trafficking to reduce the overall illicit drug supply present in the U.S. Nixon is a far more complicated character in the story than anyone really appreciates. And, you know, it's like shocking But Nixon is the only president in all of American history who's ever had anything close to a balanced drug policy, uh, which only lasted for about 18 months. But credit where it's due, he's the only president to send equal resources to treatment and rehabilitation and public health as to law enforcement uh, in in all of American history. But in reality, diplomatic action during Nixon's first year in office indicated that the emphasis would be on blocking drugs from entering the United States. One of the largest sources of heroin and marijuana trafficking into the U.S. was from its immediate southern neighbor, Mexico. During the 1960s, Mexico maintained a cordial, if somewhat distant, relationship with the U.S., ever mindful of maintaining its economic and political sovereignty. Despite Mexican officials' professed disinterest in escalating drug control efforts on Mexican soil, U.S. officials insisted that behind closed doors, Mexican officials could not contain their desire for a joint approach to eradicating opium and marijuana cultivation in their country. To draw this rumored Mexican governmental support out into the open, White House senior advisor John Elrickman recommended that the Mexican government be, quote, forced into action through a campaign of strict enforcement and customs inspection at the border. Dr. Teague emphasizes the importance of the late 1960s and the expansion of the modern war on drugs. It definitely escalated um, with, uh, with the U.S. government. Um, and it was when Mexico, it was when the United States started to, co- in my, as I see it in my research, the U.S. started to coerce Mexico, um, or I guess I use the word more co-opt, um, Mexico into um, beginning a more intensive um, anti-drug program. And it started to do so by um, using sort of carrot and stick ap- approaches where the carrot approach would be more along the lines of like um, giving military aid, um, 
and policing assistance, but the stick approach would be um, measures like Operation Intercept in 1969, when the United States actually closed down the border um, in order to um, get Mexico to sort of pay more attention to drug control and to escalate its own um, policies and policing efforts. Unilaterally planned and implemented by the United States on September 21st, 1969, Operation Intercept halted and searched all traffic at the U.S.-Mexican border to capture illicit drug shipments while also exerting immense economic pressure on Mexico. The Mexican government, press, and public reacted with swift hostility to the near closing of the border. The local press in Hermosillo, the American consulate reported, charged that Intercept was politically motivated, an action seeking to undermine Mexican sovereignty and an expression of, quote, subconscious hate. But after 20 days, during which time tourist traffic across the border had declined by nearly 70%, U.S. officials got what they wanted. Intercept drove the Mexican government to the negotiating table. Eventually, the, the, the Mexicans are really pissed. They have a conversation and they announce something called Operation Cooperation, which both countries agree to work together to, again, to, to work together in this uh, broader drug prohibition regime, international regime that focused on eradicating you know, the supply side of this entire uh, situation, this entire economy. Um, and that, that really, that's, and throughout the 1970s, these different drug um, um, campaigns that get launched by Mexico during the 1970s, they're a response to U.S. pressure, and they more or less are following U.S. dictates, right? Particularly with the DEA being organized in 1973. U.S. and Mexican officials emerged from joint talks on October 10, 1969, with a new bilateral commitment called Operation Cooperation. Both countries agreed to, quote, pursue with increased vigor, unquote, the production, trafficking, and consumption of narcotics and other dangerous drugs. For the purposes of drug control, I think that it was, its fundamental architecture was developed, obviously, here in the United States. There were a number of laboratories um, across the 20th century um, where drug control was actually militarized and it became uh, framed or shaped around the concept of war. Mexico constituted one of those laboratories throughout the 1970s and 80s, thanks especially to Operations Intercept and Cooperation, which opened the door to millions of dollars in U.S. military and economic aid to train Mexican police forces in surveillance, security, and eradication techniques. Techniques simultaneously applied to drug trafficking within the United States. In the 70s, the Mexican government actually implemented its own um, eradication program uh, using Paraquat to destroy marijuana plants. Paraquat is an herbicide that is used to control weeds and is, as we now know, highly toxic to mammals. It has been banned in 32 countries, including the European Union, but is still widely used in developing nations. So then there was this big scare, like a paraquat scare. And people who were buying cannabis from Mexico were afraid to smoke it, and they didn't know if it would damage their lungs, because paraquat is extraordinarily toxic. The Nixon administration, and later under Carter, they actually took note of Mexico's program, and and then later implemented a domestic paraquat spraying program, um, where they actually sprayed paraquat onto 
just marijuana that was growing wild, that was not actually cultivated. Um, and it had, you know, negative uh, environmental effects and residents nearby complained about um, just contamination to their like water and their fields. And, and again, this was marijuana that nobody, nobody was actually cultivating. It was just growing wild. So the Reagan administration in the early 80s um, determines to use Paraquat domestically in national forests where stands of marijuana are being found to be cultivated. This is Dr. Sarah Brady-Siff, a historian for the Drug Enforcement and Policy Center at The Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law. Right now I'm working on a book called Weed Killers about cannabis eradication, um, both through legal means and sort of the botanical means. So you have uh, the development of aerial surveillance by helicopter, greatly um, buttressed by experience in Vietnam, right? Because lots of helicopters flying around uh, in Vietnam. So this is sort of a, a, a wartime tactic that gets um, transplanted or uh, not, not necessarily transplanted, but um, also used in, in the United States. And uh, so they can find cannabis growing illicitly outdoors, and they now also have these new pesticides that will that will kill it. Right. So the Reagan administration, the Reagan people think um, that if people buy cannabis and it's contaminated with paraquat, that's their problem. Uh, so so the state of Florida agrees to use paraquat in domestic eradication. This is early 1980s. And um, the state of Georgia actually says, no, we don't, want you, we don't want you to do this. So a couple of lawsuits ensue. And um, NORML, the National Organization for the Form of Marijuana Laws, is very much opposed to the U.S. using paraquat domestically to kill patches of cannabis. So if the United States hadn't fought in the Vietnam War, um, there might not be, uh, they might not be so willing to both use helicopters for aerial surveillance and to use paraquat on a, um, on a place where people live nearby, right? Because in Vietnam, they've had this experience with using chemical agents to fight a war. So they seem like economically prudent and, um, highly effective solutions um, to the U.S. government. One of the reasons that Reagan wanted to use paraquat on the national forests in Georgia, where DEA agents had found plants being cultivated, marijuana plants being cultivated, is to make a demonstration to, um, to South American countries that the United States was willing to use these chemicals domestically so they should be willing to accept the use of these chemicals in their countries. And I think this is probably um, Colombia, Bolivia, Peru at this time. And they're trying to, um, to, to get these countries to undertake their own policing and their own eradication and to use these, basically to use these chemicals. I even have, I found this handwritten note from Reagan, and um, he's responding to a um, press release or a, a news brief about 
Paraquat, and he writes in, Reagan writes in the margin, aren't we just doing this to show Columbia that we are willing to do this? Like it's it's very transparent in the, in the documentation that, that it's the the purpose of doing it domestically is to push use of it abroad. While the U.S. approach to drug prohibition became more militarized as early as the 1960s, the term war on drugs wasn't invoked until October 1982 by Ronald Reagan during one of his weekly radio addresses. He outlined his plan for a campaign against drugs using language cloaked in military metaphors. The mood toward drugs is changing in this country and the momentum is with us. We're making no excuses for drugs, hard, soft, or otherwise. Drugs are bad and we're going after them. As I've said before, we've taken down the surrender flag and run up the battle flag, and we're going to win the war on drugs. I tend to think of the Reagan administration as being this period where the U.S. national security complex is moving toward Um, a new paradigm for national security, because as it becomes apparent that the U.S. public is, you know, that that fears of of communist subversion no longer animate the U.S. public, you know, the the sort of lodestar of Cold War uh, strategy of containment of Soviet communism is, is jeopardized because the public will just doesn't exist to to contain Soviet communism. It's not a tangible threat to them. Um, and after the Vietnam War, it was just you know very unclear how that war contributed to containing Soviet communism. Um, you know, I think the American public became convinced that that well, some of the American public became convinced that we should have never been there in the first place. What we see is, you know, this this kind of gradual shift toward the rhetoric of drugs and drug control. And this is formalized in 1985 with, you know, when the when drugs are clearly established as a national security threat. And then that opens the path toward, um, you know, things like militarizing the drug war and just uh, basically being able to um, divert more resources toward anti-narcotics efforts, which were of course linked to um, to communist or leftist insurgencies, especially during the 80s. Communism, containment, Vietnam, the Cold War. What do these things have to do with the war on drugs? Great question. Over the course of this season, we'll see how the drug wars both predate and outlive the Cold War, and several other international wars, in fact. For now, though, all you need to know is that beginning in the early years of the Cold War, drugs and communism were inextricably linked in the minds of American policymakers, dual dangers that required constant vigilance and, over time, more surveillance and more policing. Harry J. Anslinger, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics from 1930 to 1962, and today widely regarded as the first drug czar of U.S. federal narcotics policy, was one of the most visible voices warning against the way that drugs might erode the, quote, moral fiber, unquote, of the United States and leave the country vulnerable to communist subversion. He used the drug war to 
enact a very kind of crusading and missionary version of the Cold War, where, for example, communist China was always wrong and always the bad guy, and Chiang Kai-shek and the, you know, Kuomintang and nationalist allies were always good. The problem for Harry Anslinger was that the truth was exactly the opposite. It was Chiang Kai-shek's allies who were trafficking in drugs. During the Kennedy years, Anslinger was largely silenced by critics as a more compassionate understanding of drug addiction as a medical issue became more popular. But his inflammatory method for making the Cold War and drug prohibition one and the same would resurface a few decades later. After Nixon's years of detente with the Soviet Union and Carter's years of reducing the penalties for drug possession, Ronald Reagan reignited both the Cold War and the war on drugs. In a letter to his Secretary of Defense, Caspar W. Weinberger, written in October 1985, Reagan opined that, quote, Over the past year, I have become increasingly concerned about the growing threat to our national security from the international narcotics trade, unquote. Reagan noted the dangers to the, quote, military readiness and, quote, fabric of U.S. society posed by cooperative alliance between insurgent and terrorist groups and local criminal syndicates. He encouraged Weinberger to consider how the U.S. military could further support the country's war on drugs, both domestically and abroad. Just six months later, Reagan signed National Security Decision Directive 221, which officially designated drug trafficking as a matter of U.S. national security, warranting militarized counter-narcotics efforts to combat the violence, political corruption, and rural insurgency that accompanied drug operations, especially in Latin America. Is it starting to become a little clearer why Trump brought those drug charges against Maduro in 2020? Yeah, I thought it might. The Trump administration's actions against Maduro in the name of the war on drugs was not a new strategy. Rather, it was a continuation of the American worldview that closely links drug trafficking activity with international foes working to undermine U.S. national security. For Trump, the enemy was Maduro, just as for Reagan, the enemy was Soviet Russia. As, you know, the Soviet Union um, itself is in the process of of transformation, and um, particularly after Gorbachev comes to power and starts deprioritizing aid to, you know, to these communist or leftist insurgencies in places like Asia and Africa and Latin America. And so they do, some of them do turn toward greater involvement in drug traffic as a way of replacing those funds that had dried up from the Soviet Union. So it's not that, you know, the Reagan administration was completely inventing the threat of narco-terrorism, but it was, um, it was using it in an unhelpful way in its rhetoric because it failed to distinguish between the motives of very different actors in drug traffic and the rhetoric of narco-terrorism conflated um, all of these actors in a way that, that didn't really lead to coherent policy. So even though the Soviet Union was in decline and reducing its funding for political groups seeking to implement their own revolutions, the U.S. believed that those rebels would simply turn to drug trafficking to fund their operations. 
ultimately driving the escalation of the war on drugs both abroad and at home in the United States. The 1970s and 1980s brought the rise of large transnational illicit trafficking networks, like the infamous Colombian drug cartel from Medellin, an alliance among notable traffickers including the Ochoa family, Pablo Escobar, Carlos Leder, and Jose Gonzalo Rodriguez Gaucho. Their growing power and rival competition introduced an extreme level of violence both in their home country and in South Florida, a key entrance point for drug shipments. This new violence necessitated increased law enforcement efforts both domestically and abroad to keep it under control. Concurrently, crack cocaine emerged in the United States in the mid-1980s, offering its users a cheap, highly addictive trip. As emergency room admissions for cocaine overdoses soared and complications such as crack babies entered into the American consciousness, the U.S. public panicked over this new threat to the nation's children and future, as it was framed by the American policymakers. Drug prohibitionism has always been part of the culture wars. So the culture wars have been fought over immigration, of course, and the whole race issue of you know, what what should the United States look like and who are really Americans, right? That's that's really the, to my mind, the question at the heart of the culture wars. What, how do we define America? And so we see the, the rise of prohibitionist sentiment as being connected to, um, you know, perceptions of, of racially undesirable groups. Cocaine, for instance, was legal, you know, with the rise of of cocaine in the late 70s and the 80s, and then the whole, you know, crack scare that was associated with African Americans, of course, not immigrants, or not, you know, not immigrants by choice. Um, But it still goes to the heart of the of the issue of drugs being connected in the minds of American public opinion with certain racial, with certain groups that are defined in racial terms. You might recall that during this time, Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, which implemented much stricter punishment for the possession and use of crack cocaine than for the powdered version, introducing a legal disparity that targeted low-income, often Black, Americans more than affluent white Americans. Out of the authorized $1.7 billion for drug control efforts at home and abroad, $1.1 billion was allocated towards law enforcement measures. Reagan had chosen to stay the course set by his predecessors. The war on drugs would be fought through interdiction and foreign source control. The Reagan administration moved forward with its plans to use, quote, enhanced military and law enforcement activities to shut off the narcotics supply from Colombia, Peru, and Bolivia, end quote. A favorite technique in these foreign source control campaigns was eradication of drug crops through the use of herbicides, fire, or manual uprooting. Of course, this wasn't a novel strategy. Earlier, we talked about the use of Paraquat in Mexico and the United States. Reagan's use of U.S. military troops to provide ground support for eradication efforts in foreign source countries, though, distinguished his drug war from others. You can see this at work during Operation Blast Furnace, a bilateral operation executed in Bolivia in July 1986. 
Blast Furnace aimed to destroy cocaine production labs in the Chapare and Beni regions of Bolivia, areas that were historic strongholds of coke cultivation and trafficker operations. If forces could destroy the production labs, the ideas went, then campesinos, those who cultivated coca, the raw plant ingredient essential to the production of cocaine, would more willingly stop supplying the drug producers. U.S. military personnel were sent in to support the Drug Enforcement Administration and the Leopards, the Bolivian Drug Enforcement Task Force, in their operation. Past violent campesino reactions against the Leopards often succeeded in halting eradication efforts and pushing them out of the region. Bolivian public backlash against the presence of the U.S. military on their country's soil was huge. Many viewed it as an invasion and violation of their sovereignty. Overall, the joint U.S.-Bolivian effort made temporary gains. They pushed traffickers out of the region and dropped the price of the coca leaf. But the industry quickly recovered when the U.S. forces withdrew at the end of the operation. A more lasting consequence of Blast Furnace was the strengthening of campesino opposition to coca control and eradication efforts, a pattern that was replicated in other Andean countries. In Peru, for example, the rebel group Sendero Luminoso, The Shining Path, established its network of operations in the upper Huyaga Valley, a traditional area of coca cultivations that the United States targeted with eradication and agricultural development. To consolidate support for its movement, the Senderos presented themselves as, quote, advocates for the rights of campesino coca growers, end quote, and provided protection to growers and traffickers alike, in exchange for protection fees. With a reliable base of support from campesinos and drug traffickers, guerrilla groups strengthened their hold over rural areas of the Andean nations, which prompted the United States to pressure the governments to implement aggressive, militarized measures to combat the rebels and traffickers simultaneously. Doing so only fueled the vicious cycle already in motion, since escalated action further isolated campesinos from their governments. But if drug control efforts are only worsening the political, economic, and social situation in your country, why get involved at all? I think, you know, uh, Colombian and Peruvian officials collaborated with, with the United States in the hopes of obtaining counterinsurgency assistance. And because of U.S. congressional restrictions on such assistance, again, as a result of the Vietnam War, the attempt by U.S. US national security officials was to um, package this assistance in terms of anti-narcotics policies. The United States, it seemed, was not the only country that pursued a war on drugs for reasons other than reducing the production, consumption, and trafficking of illicit substances. As we will see time and again, in many ways, the war on drugs isn't about drugs at all. But we'll come back to that later. When George H.W. Bush assumed the presidency in 1989, he continued the policies he had supervised as Reagan's vice president, a military approach to the war on drugs. The end of the Cold War freed up copious military resources that could be refocused elsewhere, at home and abroad. The war on drugs provided the national security paradigm that bridged the Cold War and the war on terror. 
Um, so we see that during the Reagan administration, even though um, the Cold War was very linked to the narcotics issue, it started to move away from that as the decade progressed. And as, um, you know, as the threat from the Soviet Union declined and then vanished altogether, drugs took the place of communism as, you know, the, the lodestar around which U.S. national security policy revolved. So, so it enables um, the continuation of interventionist foreign policies abroad. And it also enables, you know, the continuation of the punitive regime at home. So, you know, the United States currently incarcerates a greater percentage of its population than any other nation on earth by elevating drugs to the level of a national security threat. It justifies ever harsher um, penalties for drug users and drug traffickers. The war on drugs was also intensified at home, not just with the militarization of local and state police forces, but also with the creation of a more permanent legal framework that continues to frustrate today's reform efforts. The Violent Crime Control Act and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, better known as the 1994 Crime Bill, provided massive amounts of federal funding for states and localities to build more prisons. It also created tougher sentences at the federal level, which in turn encouraged others to, as the ACLU perfectly phrases it, lock up more people and for longer periods of time. Thus, in many ways, the 1994 crime bill was the culmination of the tough-on-crime approach to fighting the war on drugs both at home and abroad. The legacy of this method, though, according to many, is complete failure and disproportionate damage. The war on drugs has been a very misguided policy that has created significantly more harm than it has prevented. It's also important to recognize that the war on drugs has not just been a creation of the United States, and it's not simply a, uh, its origins are not simply in racism or in imperialism, uh, but rather its, its development is, was a very complex process that occurred on a global scale, really, um, and involved many different countries, and it, but involved certain discourses and ideas about drugs that were really shared across many countries. And to simplify it to kind of demonizing the United States or demonizing, um, uh, you know, certain actors, I think misses the complexity of the story. We spent a lot of time talking about the United States in this episode, and for good reason. Arguably, no country has poured as many resources into the creation of a global war on drugs than the United States. But as we'll see... The United States didn't invent the idea of drug prohibition, nor did it build this global apparatus alone. Next time on Prologued, we unearth the colonial roots of the drug war. But I think really to understand the development of the modern war on drugs, you have to go back a little further. And really the, the, the most important moment is the story of opium in China and the relationship between China and Great Britain. Uh, in the so-called Opium Wars. This season of Prologue was brought to you by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication created by the Public History Initiative, the Goldberg Center, and the History Departments at The Ohio State University in Columbus 
and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Special thanks to the Stanton Foundation for their ongoing support. Our editors are David Staggerwald, Stephen Kahn, and Nicholas Breifogel. Researched, written, and hosted by Brianna Mendoza. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotmer, and our production specialist is Brandon McLean at Orange Studio. Our theme song is Hot Shot by Scott Holmes. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. It helps others find our show. As any good historian should, we encourage our listeners to visit the episode descriptions for citations to background reading and sources that informed the creation of this podcast. Season 1 of Prologued on the Myth of the Women's Block has all episodes streaming now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as wherever else you get your podcasts. For additional podcasts, articles, and videos, all of which approach events happening in our world today from a historical perspective, follow us on social media at OriginsOSU. Thanks for listening. 